listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. I'm Farah Nasrali, and I'm here with Norman Fisher, who is an American Soto Zen Roshi poet and Buddhist author. He's author of many, many books that are um, widely respected. And I'm very excited to speak with him today about his latest book, which is on the practice of Lojong. Welcome, Norman. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, I'm really excited because I've read parts of this book, and uh, Lojong is a very beautiful practice that I'm familiar with. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about some of the um, things that you write about in the introduction of your book. Um, the first one being, you say that our hearts are made for loving, that we are programmed for cooperation and connection. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about this, because it seems to be sometimes there is this other viewpoint that the violence that exists in the world or the war that exists is just part of our human nature. And this presents a radically different view of our human nature. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more? Well, uh, of course, this is a great question, and you and I are not the first to discuss it. People have been debating about what's the essential human nature for forever. You know, I mean, the earliest religious writings speak about it. And uh, what I was thinking of when I made that statement in the book is the recent work in um, evolutionary biology. Uh, which suggests that uh, the human species succeeded because we learned how to cooperate and we learned how to band together uh, so that uh, individuals weren't on their own. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work uh, that that says that. But, of course, you know, there you, you could argue against it and you could cite other evidence that says otherwise. Uh, there's no doubt that human beings have... Uh, a capacity and a tendency for violence and uh, selfishness and brutality. I mean, there's plenty of evidence in history for that. There's no denying that. But uh, it's a question of um, what is our essential nature. Uh, I think to say that we're doomed to that forever and ever uh, doesn't really strike me as true because for about the last 2,000 years in human history, we've had a vision of peace and harmony that we didn't have prior to that time. So it seems like uh, if human beings are developing and and in the process of changing their nature, as I think every creature is, I think we're going in the the direction of of compassion, love, and peace. And uh, yes, we've got a lot to overcome within ourselves, but I think we're getting there and I think we're doing that. Mm -hmm. So... But it's not a provable thesis. You know, I would never sort of stand up and cite statistics and, and debate, you know, human beings are like this and not like that. I mean, the truth is human beings are like everything. You know, we have so, <laughs> everything in us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you speak about Lojong as a method of training the mind in compassion, and compassion not as a rarefied quality only for the saintly, but as something that is available to all of us and can be cultivated through training. And this seems to speak that to the fact that each of us has within us a potential as great as that of the Buddha or of Jesus Christ or of the great 
the great people who have had compassionate hearts. When you teach and when you write, how do you inspire people to really wake up to the potential that they're bigger than they might know themselves to be? Mm-hmm. Well, I think anybody who hears that message uh, is inspired by it and thinks, oh, somehow or other, I have a feeling that that's true about all of us, and I would like to feel it. Mm-hmm. I really don't, but I would like to feel it. So in other words, it's something that when we hear it, we want to do it. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the most important, uh, you know, I practice Soto Zen, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, introduction. and uh, for me, the most uh, persuasive and powerful way of being inspired in that view is to do the practice, meditation practice. I think when you sit, it's just very simply to sit and breathe and be present to your own heart, uh, to what comes up and goes out inside your mind, inside your perception, inside your emotions. And you sit there long enough over a period of time and you do begin to have confidence in the sacredness of basic human life. I mean, in a way, you know, it's very interesting to me that everybody, pretty much everywhere in the world, people agree that it's not a good idea to kill other people. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because why not? If somebody, you know, you don't like somebody or they take something from you, why not just kill them, you know? But it's a universal thought that, no, you don't just lightly kill other human beings because there's something sacred about human life. And we don't make a hierarchy. We don't say, well, some people are sacred and others are not. Most most places, everybody agrees, a, human, a human life is a sacred thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you just sort of throw away like you throw away a piece of paper or even something valuable you might throw away. A human life you don't throw away. So in other words, we all know this. We all agree already that there's something about any single human being that's precious and valuable and it's an infinite potential. So we all know this. But what we need is, uh, because we've all been so brutalized by everything that's happened to us and hurt in a thousand ways every single day, that we really have lost track of that sacred spark within ourselves. So we actually need, I think, a pretty thorough and ongoing spiritual practice to awaken ourselves to it. So it's not a matter of somebody giving a speech, you know, and inspiring you to it. The, the, the virtue of the speech is to kind of get you started on something that's more than the speech, which is your own spiritual cultivation, whether it's yoga or meditation or prayer or the study of and contemplation of spiritual texts or, you know, uh, many uh, encounters with nature. You know, people, I think, who go on, you know, long nature treks will find the sacred within themselves and within all of life. So there's lots of ways of finding it, but it's something that one has to do systematically and regularly and and uh and then i think through the course of doing it this kind of wisdom and and a confidence in the sacredness of of human life and all of life becomes pretty apparent i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now we're going to talk about some of the specific um teachings of the lojong but before that i'm wondering if you, you know you mentioned mind training um can you define mind mind for us well uh of course (laughs) that's a complicated (laughs) question um but one thing to say that's very important is that um in all asian languages 
and and the text of the Lojong is no exception. The word mind doesn't doesn't just mean uh, cerebral. It doesn't just mean intellect. Mm-hmm. It means consciousness itself. It means uh, f- emotions, feelings. Of course, it does mean thoughts. It means reasoning and all the things we usually think of as mind. But it also means emotions. It also means perception. It also means sensations in the body because it's mind that enables us to register, you know, a, a pain or a pleasure in the body. Mm-hmm. So, so mind. Is, is really, you might say, it's consciousness. But even consciousness sounds a little bit uh, scientific and distant for something that is so intimate, because mind is the most intimate thing. Mind is, is really our life and, and what we are and what gives us the world and what, and what allows us to uh, relate and embrace the world. Mm-hmm. So mind is, is all of that. It's really, it's really all the manifestations of our consciousness, you know, it's it's almost like you could say, uh, light. You know, the world would not appear at all, right, unless there's light. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Once the light's turned on, all of a sudden you see trees and grass and, and everything that's out there. So mind is like that. Mind lights up our life for us and lights up the world for us. Everything, including uh, the things we feel with our bodies and and our hearts, and also the things we think. Hmm. Now, you define compassion in the book and say that first, in, in order for us to um, feel compassionate for others, we have to embrace our own suffering, and that means to turn towards our own suffering rather than away from it. And um, I'm, I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about this because, you know, the stereotype that is often presented in popular culture is a person sitting in meditation and, and there's this experience of, bliss or happiness and my own experience and the people that I know who are dedicated meditation practitioners would um, say that you know the experience of meditation is exactly that confronting your own pain Um, Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and uh, right so a lot of people's conception of spiritual practice is just that that it's that it's a beautiful, peaceful escape from the troubles of the world. <laughs> so, so there, yeah. So there are people who scorn spiritual practice for that reason. There's all these people seeking spiritual practice. Why don't they just get get it together and get a job? Or mm-hmm. why don't they just get it together and do something <laughs> to help the world? You know, what are they doing? Running away to their ashrams where they you know pass each other flowers. When the world is burning all around them, what's wrong with these people? Mm-hmm. So I think that on both counts, there's a lot of uh, critique of spiritual practice. And in fact, a lot of people who go to spiritual practice go with that idea, like, oh my God, I can't stand this life. is so hideous and horrible and <laughs> difficult. I want to get out of here where everybody's going to be nice and peaceful and I'm going to be in bliss and I'm going to eat vegetarian food and I'll be in, <laughs> there'll be palm trees around and everything's going to be nice. Mm-hmm. So people often come with that attitude and they're looking for that and and, and as you just as you say um, you know eventually one realizes that well wait a minute you know if i if i'm actually going to practice the meditation or do whatever it is that we're doing here inevitably i'm going to come up against everything that i ran here to get rid of in my because it's here it's in me it's not, <laughs> i can't escape it it's not outside it's also in me mm-hmm. so then you then you then you either have to face your pain if you have good uh community and good teachers who will help you or you probably can 
continue for some time over writing it, pushing it away, and going to the bliss as much as possible. But this is not something that you can actually do for very long. And if you do are able to continue to do it, then you're probably not in a good spiritual practice center because, as you said, you know anybody who does this for a while realizes that you have to confront everything uh, that that's within you. And, and this is what we don't want to do, right? We mm-hmm. really, really, really don't. I mean, we really, everything in us says, look, if there's a problem, solve it. If there's a way that's difficult, don't go that way. Go a different way. <laughs> Whatever it is that's happening, you know, find a way to get to, to smooth it over so you don't have to face difficulty. Nobody wants to go toward difficulty. And, and, and of course, nobody, it's, we don't want to do that. We want to, let's make things as easy as possible. Right. However... Anybody who's lived uh, more than a few years in this life <laughs> and on this planet knows that eventually you come up against something that's not pleasant, that's difficult, that you cannot avoid and you cannot fix and you cannot get around. And that denying it or pushing it away or being afraid of it or avoiding it actually just makes it worse and furthermore causes it to repeat over and over again. Mm-hmm. So at some point... Even though you don't like it, you realize I've just got to do what's counterintuitive and, you know, uh, goes against my habit. I've got to turn toward the difficulty and face it and breathe with it and dance with it and uh, see it for what it really is. Because if I keep running away from it, it just makes things worse. And and then that's called, you know, being compassionate for yourself, being willing to admit and take in your own pain uh, with, uh, without resistance and with a feeling of acceptance. And once you can do that, usually you have a bigger acceptance and, and, and better feeling and more forgiving feeling you know, for your own life. And once that happens, you actually have the capacity to do that in relation to other people. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot of people, what they think of as compassion for others is really just a distraction. <laughs> In other words, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to feel her pain because I don't want to feel my pain. So I'll distract myself from my pain with her pain that I'm not going to feel either, but I'm going to say nice words and I'm going to do nice things as a way of distracting myself from the fact that we're all in pain mm-hmm. and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is how we connect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a suffering human being, and, and so are you, and, and we share that. We're, we're we're really very close, you and I, mm-hmm. because we share that. And on on that, on that basis, you know, we can reach out to each other. And when we do that, and here's the great paradox of it all: we're happy when right? we when we reach out and make that connection. When we right, in other mm-hmm. words, when, the the thing that makes us the most happy of anything. Mm-hmm. That real happiness is love, mm-hmm. and there is no love without compassion. If I can't, if I'm unwilling to go there when you're in pain, I can't love you. Right. And if I am willing to go there, I can love you. And when there's love, there's happiness. So, in other words, my happiness is ensured by my—I mean, quite paradoxically—by my ability to go toward my own pain and the pain of others and feel compassion and love. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. <clears throat> Let's get into some of the very specific. Uh, c- can you describe um, 
for our listeners who might not be familiar with Lojong, exactly what Lojong is. Well, Lojong is a very brief series, of, a list, really, of uh, 59 practice slogans. And they're organized under seven points. And, and traditionally, the text is called Seven Points of Mind Training or Seven Points of Heart Training or Consciousness Training. And under the seven points are 59 slogans. Um, and so the idea is that you would um, uh, take these slogans, these phrases, and you would hear talks about them, and that's what this book is. It's a discussion of each one of the 59 slogans so that you have a feeling for what it's about and, and how to work with it. So you'd you know, listen to teachings about it, and then you'd memorize it, you would bring it to your meditation cushion. You'd repeat it over and over again. You would uh, literally bring it into your daily life. So, so you have a phrase like one of them is, uh, you know, maintain a joyful mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you would have that phrase pop up into your mind during your day when you needed it. You know, when it when it, when you felt like you were beginning to indulge a very negative mind, as we often do, right? We gotta, you, you realize that something bad happens, and then you get onto that, and you make it worse and worse and worse, and you make it last a really long time when you could just sort of notice it and let it go. So when you start doing that, all of a sudden it pops into your mind, maintain a joyful mind. Mm -hmm. And then you say, oh, yes, that's right. That's, I don't need to keep going on and on with this. Let's me have a little, little moment of joy right now. And so you actually use the slogans to shape the way you work with your mind. And after a while, what happens is you begin to realize, oh, you know what? I'm doing a lot of stuff with my my state of mind all day long. I'm actually creating, actively creating a state of mind. And how is my state of mind? Well, the truth is it's not that great. You know, I'm not a happy guy, and um, I often have negative thoughts. I'm often frustrated. My general underlying attitude, you know, really is not that inspired. And I'm act actively pr producing that. I mean, I think that that's just how it is, but no, it's, I realize now that I'm actively producing that. I'm making that attitude every single day. Well, when I introduce these slogans, I'm being invited to make a different attitude, to have a different sort of climate in my mind, a climate of mind that is more focused on love and actual interest in and concern for others than I ever have ever been. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you're dropping these little phrases into your mind and you're working on it for maybe years and years and years. And little by little by little, you realize, you know, you have a different attitude. You have a different feeling about yourself and about your life and about others. So it's a way of, um, in a sense, getting ourselves out of maybe cultural and, and childhood programming and conditioning exactly. and exactly. planting, um, you know, teachings that actually are more helpful in generating what we deeply desire. Exactly, exactly. Because when you think about it, you know, we have all kinds of slogans in our mind already, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, Only absolutely. we haven't chosen, chosen them. <laughs> we haven't thought about it and said, you know what, this is what I would really want for my life. We mm -hmm. haven't done that. We've just willy-nilly received these things and they've impressed us and, and they usually have not been helpful. Mm -hmm. And this is saying, no, let me think about this now and let me undertake uh, a course of cultivation of my attitude that, that is something that I, I thought about and really do affirm. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. That's just what it is. Yeah. 
So um, there's a couple that I'd like to talk about. One is rest in the openness of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that what that means, what it looks like, how a situation might present itself, and we could apply it to that situation? Well, uh, yes. Uh, now this this text is uh, it's actually um, runs the gamut of practices that go from the deepest and most profound spiritual experiences mm-hmm. to everyday life working with other people in relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the slogans that references uh, deep meditation practice and insight. Mm-hmm. So rest in the openness of mind, I think, is most easily understood as a meditation practice. So you're sitting on your meditation cushion, you're spending some time settling with your body, sitting up straight and opening up your body so that you're not kind of slouching and, and reinforcing the usual sort of self-image that comes from the way we kind of slink around and slouch around in our ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sitting up straight, you, you look like a, a Buddha when you sit there, mm-hmm. and you're breathing, and you're calm, and you're, rest, you're bringing your mind to rest, you know, all the stuff that's running around in your mind, the things you have to do, and all your little resentments and, and leftover bits and pieces of this and that from the day begins to settle. And then you just return to the profundity of what it feels like to just be present and alive. You know, imagine like getting over, getting through all of your little niggly little problems, and then all of a sudden you're just there, just completely there being alive and there's nothing else that you're worried about in that moment but just appreciating Mm -hmm. what it's like to be alive and all of a sudden you feel a tremendous sense of Mm well-being because you realize there's such a beauty in Mm -hmm. just being alive here Mm -hmm. it's just so nurturing it's just so pleasant and beautiful and it's so profound it's deep it's not just like a little moment of uh, enjoyment it's it's something you feel the depth of it and that's resting in the openness of mind so it's it's yeah go ahead um i'm just thinking i'm sure most people have had an experience of watching a sunset or sitting by the water where yes exactly exactly yeah so i guess that would be a good example of that yes no that's right it's the same it's the same mind but here the idea is to cultivate that right so that in other words you're not depending on the sunset Mm mm-hmm so you, but right in the once you cultivate it on your meditation cushion, you see, and once you have a relationship to it as a state of mind that you understand is present all the time, if only you could access it, then it becomes more accessible to you all the time. You begin to cultivate that, so that in effect, you said, I remember one Zen teacher used to literally say what you just said. He used to say, "Well, when I'm having a hard time and I'm in a mess, I close my eyes and I think of a sunset." He mm-hmm. said actually just that. And he said, when I, and, and then I, I make that, that's very vivid for me, and all of a sudden I have peace and I stop going on and on about my problem. Mm-hmm. So that's right, that's it. And it's learning to generate that from within you, regardless of what's happening outside of you. That's right, and I, and I think that, like I say, I, I don't want to trivialize this, because it's, it's more than, I mean, as we're talking about it now, it sounds like a little trick, you know, like just to get your mind off something. But it's really much more than that, and particularly when, as in the case of the Zen master I just quoted, 
when you have many, many, um, you know, years of spiritual practice uh, behind it, where you've really and truly in meditation and in deep retreats and in prayer or whatever you do, you've really, really cultivated this openness of mind, so that it's, when you when you go to it, it's not just a snapshot of a sunset. It's it really evokes something deep that's very familiar to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I really like the one, turn all mishaps into the path or whatever you meet is the path. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, well, that one is very, very important because um, a lot of time uh, people who actually do spiritual practice will often say, oh, my practice was going along really, really well. I was really getting happier and happier all the time. And then all of a sudden, such and so <laughs> happened, you know. My boyfriend broke up with me. I lost my job. This and this happened. I got, I got, you know, I fell down and broke my leg. And then that, everything went out the window. Then I couldn't do the practice anymore, and I just forgot all about it, and I just didn't feel like it. And so that happens all the time, right? Because people identify spiritual practice as a kind of extra wonderful thing to do when you're feeling well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, no, uh, spiritual practice is most beneficial when things are not going well, when you have a big challenge in your life. So you really need to learn how to uh, view your practice as something that is most beneficial and most interesting, actually, most interesting when things in your life are in difficulty. So this is a whole slogan, it's a whole set of slogans, actually, there's a whole list of them, for different ways of little by little by little turning your mind around and training your mind to turn. As soon as something happens that's difficult, you say, aha, good. This is something that I can really use to go much deeper in my practice. This is an opportunity for me now. So I'm really going to bear down here, and I'm going to bring out everything that I've learned spiritually to bring it to use here because I, this is when I really need it and this is when it can be the most beneficial and when I can learn the most. So it's, it's a matter of training yourself to have that immediate reaction so that you rise up to the occasion when something difficult happens instead of shrinking away. Mm-hmm. So maybe the, the biggest challenges that come for us can often be our biggest blessing in how they can uh, help us develop that ability to exactly. deepen exactly. our practice. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. Um, there's one that was a little bit surprising to me. I don't know why it was surprising, but um, I see it a lot in New Age books, um, the practice of gratitude. So to see the slogan, be grateful to everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about gratitude and what what does it mean to be grateful to everyone? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, of course... We all know the gratitude practices are usually uh, cultivated in relation to things that we really like. <laughs> I'm grateful for my friends. I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for you know the, this this beautiful place where I live. I'm grateful for you know the wonderful job that I have or whatever it is. But this means be grateful to everything all the time. Mm-hmm. So even when uh, things are not to your liking, even when things are difficult or unpleasant you uh, practice gratitude then. And what it really means is uh, there's a kind of profound teaching behind it. It, it, It's a recognition that there is no such thing uh, as an atomized individual. 
you know, there is no fara, you know, that could exist in space. You only exist, and I only exist, because we're in a context. We only exist because they were parents. We only exist because there's air and water and food. We only exist because there's other people mm-hmm. who help produce and maintain our lives. In other words, we literally uh, are nothing more than a network of cooperation. And that network of cooperation necessarily involves you know, living and dying and pain and suffering and difficulty and all the things that happen in this life is what's required for us to live this life fully and enjoy it. So this slogan really means, you know, meditate on that point and and know it, know how true it is. And therefore, whenever you uh, see something in this life, whether you like it or you don't like, like it, whether it seems like it's good for you or not good for you, recognize it as part of the fabric of being that is required for all of us to live and be grateful for it uh, in that light. So there's a, there's a real profound feeling here, um, uh, behind, a teaching behind this slogan. It's, it's wonderful to, because that you can actually do that. You, know, you can actually, once you cultivate this, you can, you can feel, oh, I'm, I'm grateful for this tremendous traffic jam that I'm in. <laughs> because, because I realize that you know, it's amazing that we have this network of communicating highways, and all the things that people do on them, and bringing me the food that I had for breakfast this morning, and I'm and I'm amazed. I'm sitting here in all this traffic, and I'm amazed at <clears throat> what human beings can do, and how fantastic we are, you know. And I'm in a traffic jam. So, when you say it speaks of a very deep teaching, would this be like with reference to in yoga the non-duality, or like what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about interbeing or the interdependent? Yes, exactly. Uh huh. I see. That's so. exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. I really like that one. Yeah, isn't it nice? I like that one too because it's so, it's so sweet to be grateful. You know, you cannot be unhappy when you're grateful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But great gratitude and happiness always have to go together. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there any? Do you have any favorites that you like to contemplate, or any ones that you know are part of your your practice in this very moment, or part of your teaching in this moment? Well, actually, the one you brought up earlier is one that I've been working with a lot and really enjoying, which is uh, always maintain a joyful mind, mm-hmm. or, or the way I put it is maintain joy and keep your sense of humor. <laughs> so I've been I've been uh, practicing that one a lot, and I'm finding it really really marvelous. And another one that I that I practice a lot, which I really recommend, is uh, the the last one. I think I believe this is the 59th slogan. Mm-hmm. Don't expect applause. <laughs> that's a real that's a really good one because you begin to notice how many times you do something and even though you're a perfectly nice person and you know so on and so on you realize every time you do something you're expecting applause you're expecting appreciation you're expecting that somehow someone is going to say well isn't that nice that you did that gee that was sweet <laughs> you know and then when somebody doesn't you're a little bit taken aback like wait a minute nobody appreciated me today so don't expect applause mean, means, you know, can you do everything that you do with a sense of the fullness and the completion and the joy in it so that you're not expecting any applause from other people. You know, you're not, you're, you're, you want to give to other people and, and love other people, but you're not expecting other people 
to be giving to you and, and loving you and, and applauding you. And whenever they do, it comes as a great surprise and a gift. Mm-hmm. It's not something you expected, you know. And so isn't it fantastic that somebody was nice to you today? Mm-hmm. So don't expect applause. Just do everything that you do with a sense of completion and without expecting anything to come from it. And then you'll never be disappointed, of course, ever. <laughs> it, uh, it, it seems to speak to the purity of intention to do something without any expectation or with any, to do something unconditionally because it's exactly. just the right thing to do, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. It's beautiful to do things that way, yeah. So those are the two that I've been working with a lot lately. Beautiful. And now as we draw our interview to a close, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners about maybe some of the benefits of Lojong practice and some of the um, um, things that would inspire someone to say, yeah, I I think I'd like to try this? Um, Well, um, a lot of people have really been appreciating the the book because it's very simple and very practical. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I would really recommend that people consider um, taking up Lojong practice, and I think it may be a beginning of many other related practices that you can take up. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe using the book and bringing it into your life would be a good way. And I think we're talking in the, uh, this program is in the Vancouver area, isn't it? Right, yes. Yeah, so I'll be in Vancouver uh, just in a little while. Um over the weekend of, uh, what is it, um, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and I think the night I'll be doing a retreat at the Mountain Rain uh, Zen community, and people are welcome to join the retreat. It's mountainrain.org, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the, the evening of May the 5th, which is a Sunday night, I'll be reading uh, at the Mountain Rain community. I'll do, be doing a book reading from the book and also uh, some poetry. So I would really want to be wonderful to have your listeners uh, come and and say hello at the reading, if not at the retreat. That'd be great. Fantastic. That's wonderful. It's really great that we were able to do this interview and um, let our listeners know about the retreat and about the the book reading. And I know that you do come to Vancouver regularly. So I do, I do, yes. And the Mountain Rain community is there all the time, and there's wonderful uh, Zen priests there who, who uh, can help you with your practice. It's, it's a very sweet uh, face-to-face community that I think people would enjoy. So, yeah, oh, check it out. I'll definitely, I look forward to meeting the folks there, and I hope that next time you come back to Vancouver, you'll get in touch with us, and maybe we can continue this dialogue. I hope so. Thank you. It was a wonderful interview. I really appreciate your questions. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.